As we continue our study of the book of Genesis, we'll be in Genesis chapter 47, verses 13 to 31. And we're going to talk about the mercy of God today. We see it in two points today, in procuring and promising. And so as we think about this passage of Scripture today, before we actually read the verses, I just want to read this illustration to you as we begin. In the early 1950s, teenage Lyle Dorsett and his family moved to Birmingham, Alabama, from Kansas City, Missouri. They were outsiders, often labeled Yankees by peers. But one summer evening in 1953, Dorsett was walking to his house after work and decided to take a shortcut through the campus of then Howard College, now Samford University. I've been on that campus. I know where Samford University is. He was immediately intrigued by the sight he saw, a large tent on the football field featuring a magnetic preacher. As Dorset drew near, he could hear evangelist Eddie Martin preaching on the parable of the prodigal son, calling other prodigals to come home. Dorset said, I knew I was the prodigal and needed to come home. Martin asked those in the audience to return the next evening. Dorset came early, and this time he was seated near the front. When the call came, the evangelist led me through a sinner's prayer. I confessed my need for forgiveness. While being led in prayer, I strongly felt the presence of Jesus Christ. I sensed his love and forgiveness, as well as his call to preach the gospel. Shortly thereafter, Dorset and his parents joined a local Baptist church. However, 18 months later, Dorset's family moved back to Kansas City. <clears throat> On his return, gradually he drifted. During his time in college, he embraced a materialistic worldview. He received a Ph.D. in history, but despite professional successes, he began to drink heavily and became an alcoholic. His wife, Mary, who became a Christian after their marriage, began to pray. One evening, he stormed out of the house after Mary asked him not to drink around the children. He found a bar and drank until closing. While driving up a winding mountain road, he stopped at an overlook and blacked out. The next morning, he woke up on a dirt road at the bottom of a mountain next to a cemetery, not having any memory of the drive. Dorset cried out to God, Lord, if you are here, please help me. At that moment, he recognized that the same presence he had met in Birmingham was with him in the car and loved him. The prodigal son had finally, truly come home. He said, although I made countless mistakes, the Lord never gave up on me. God then called Dorset to full-time ministry, ordination in the Anglican Church, and eventually to the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism at Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University, where he had first heard God's call to preach. <laughs> he concludes, over the years, God has proved to be a gentle comforter, like when, my, like when Mary underwent massive surgery for cancer, and when our 10-year-old daughter died unexpectedly. Certainly the most humbling and reassuring lesson is his persistence in drawing me to himself. And it was he who pursued me and sustained the relationship when I strayed in ignorant sheep-like fashion, doubted his existence, and then, like the prodigal son, deliberately moved to the far country. And it, and it is all grace, unearned, undeserved, unrepayable grace. He... Re, he uh, experienced the mercy of God, didn't he? 
in that whole experience? And, and perhaps your story is very similar to his, right? You accepted the Lord as a young person. You strayed in the middle of your life. You returned to the Lord, and, and uh, it was his grace and mercy that drew you back, wasn't it? When I think about the mercy of God, I know I've experienced his mercy throughout my life. I experienced the mercy of God when I lost both of my grandfathers a year apart. And I was around 12 years old and wasn't understanding why this was happening. Both died of cancer. Didn't know what was going on. Remember crying in the hospital because I didn't know what else to do. I experienced the mercy of God when we moved to Birmingham, Alabama after my sophomore year of high school. I left behind a steady girlfriend, but the ending of that relationship, while it was difficult, was God's mercy at work. Because now I have a beautiful wife of 32 years this past Thursday. Yeah. Right? It's the mercy of God. He knew I didn't need that girlfriend. He knew that I needed this wife. So I experienced the mercy of God through several job transitions. Just knowing that I needed to resign and move on. So I know that I can trust God to extend his mercy as I continue to live my life. Perhaps every one of us can remember a time when we have experienced the mercy of God at work in our lives. For many of us, we can recall God's mercy in various stages of life. And so we will see today that the Egyptians experienced the mercy of God through Joseph's administration of grain, and Jacob experienced the mercy of God through Joseph's promise to him, the author of Genesis wants us to understand our big idea today that the mercy of God is for all stages of life. Aren't you grateful for that? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you today. We worship you. You are a merciful God. You don't give us what we do deserve, Lord God, and we are so grateful for that. We see that in this passage today with the Egyptians and with Jacob. and Lord, I pray that, that you would just speak to us through your word today. Your word is so powerful. It transforms us, Lord, as we listen to it, as we allow it to sink deep into our hearts and minds. And I pray today that your Holy Spirit would just open hearts and minds to the message that you have for us from your word. And so we commit it to you. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 13 to 26, we're going to see the first point, which is procuring. But we're going to, I'm not going to read all those verses at once. We're going to start with verse 13. So if you'll look at, uh, in your Bibles with me at verse 13, this is what God's word says. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. So last week, Pharaoh provided, we saw, that Pharaoh provided Jacob and his family with property, and then Joseph provided them with food. If you look back at verses 11 and 12, that's what we see in chapter 47. That was, that's what was happening. Now, in contrast to that, so we see this, this little change here in verse 13. In contrast to that, we see that there was no food available in Egypt or Canaan because of the severity of the famine. <clears throat> Egypt and Canaan wasted away. But because of Joseph's recommendation to, to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance, Egypt was not actually out of food. 
it was just all in storage owned by Pharaoh. So it had been in these uh, storage uh, units in the various cities throughout the country. We saw that in Genesis chapter 41, verses 33 to 36. They just hadn't used any of those reserves yet. And so then we see this progression of procurement in verses 14 to 22. Look at those verses with me, if you would. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over... They came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph Brought all the land, uh, bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was, so, was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. So as we get into this, the first part of this procurement process is their money. When it was time to begin distributing the grain, Joseph started with the money in Egypt and Canaan. He collected all of the money that was found in both of those countries. Matthews in his commentary says, The sense is that the people fervently rummage for money, bringing every last penny. How many of us have experienced that feeling? Have you experienced that? We have to rummage through our couch cushions or our car to find money to buy something. Maybe not too many of us are doing that now, but when Judy and I first moved back from California to Pennsylvania, we were coming back from Hanover one evening and we saw uh, the tropical treat, you know? Uh, And so we thought, well, we'll just stop and get some ice cream. And in California, you can use your credit and debit card anywhere. There is no place that just takes cash. That was not the case at the tropical treat at that time. 15 years ago. Um, so we get there, we may put in our order, not knowing that we can't pay by a credit or a debit card, and then we go to pay, and, and I take my card out, and they say, we, we don't take credit, it's only cash. Off to my car I went, right? And I thought, I think I remember that I have a film canister full of quarters, at least one or two of those. So I went there, and I started rummaging through the car, and I found those film canisters, and I took the money. I had to cancel what I had ordered. I think it was like something big, like a, I don't know, it's banana split or something. So I canceled that order, and we had enough money from rummaging through the car to pay for everybody else's items. But, like, I had to do that. That's what, that's the sense in what was going on with the Egyptians and the Canaanites. They're like rummaging through everywhere to try and find any money that they can get in order to buy more grain so that they can have food to eat. When Judy and I were first married and still in college, she had a pair of jeans that would produce paper money at just the right time. 
It was amazing. It would just appear in this pair of jeans. And it would allow us to go out on cheap dates to get crazy bread from Little Caesars and then go to the park. And so I don't think she owns those jeans anymore. Whoever got those from the you know, thrift store is probably pretty lucky. Of course, we realized that it wasn't anything magical about those jeans. It was the mercy of God, right? In our lives, he was taking care of us. And so our first principle is simply that, that God is merciful. And it takes us back to our big idea that the mercy of God is for all stages of life. Whether you're a young married person in college, uh, working three part-time jobs, and Judy working two, not having a lot of money, and God just provides through a pair of jeans, right? Or whether you're further along in life, whatever stage that's in. And, you know, the Egyptians right now and the Canaanites are in this difficult stage of life. There's a severe famine going on, and maybe you're experiencing something difficult right now, too. <clears throat> now, I want you to notice that G Joseph did not keep any of the money for himself. He wasn't getting rich off of this. He took all of the money and brought it into Pharaoh's palace. He understood his role and his purpose. Now, but I want you to notice something really important here. There's a switch from Egypt and Canaan to only Egypt. This just jumped out of the page of me this week. Only the Egyptians would forfeit their livestock, land, and lives. The Canaanites would not. And I believe this is significant, especially as it pertains to the promised land. The promised land was reserved for God's chosen people. Therefore, it would not be owned by Pharaoh and Egypt. So there was a distinction that took place here with livestock. 400 years later, I don't want you to miss this, 400 years later, during the plagues that are coming on Egypt, the Israelites are there, right? They're, they want to be taken out of Egypt. During that time, <clears throat> the first three plagues that happen affect both the Egyptians and the Israelites. But the fourth plague does not, and, and on, the fourth and, and continuing, do not affect the Israelites. And the fourth plague is the one about livestock. There's a distinction. God says there's a distinction. I'm not going to kill their livestock. And then the darkness didn't affect them and all the rest of the plagues up to the firstborn son. There was a distinction that took place there. We see that here as well. And so the Egyptians came to Joseph when their money was used up and asked for, asked for food. So Joseph barters with all the Egyptians. He will sell them food in exchange for their livestock. The livestock included horses, sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. We don't normally see horses listed, but it, it's important. Horses were for battle. And so those that were in the military were also being affected by this. Joseph bought them, uh, brought them through that year with food in exchange for their livestock. Now, the various translations say it differently here. The NIV, as I just read, says brought them through. Several other, uh, like the King James and the New American Standard, they say fed them. The English Standard and Revised Standard say supplied them. Others say provided them, got them through. But in the the footnotes of the New American Standard, 
the both 95 and the 2020. Um, it says, literally translated, it means, led them as a shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? Joseph is leading these Egyptians as a shepherd through this really difficult time. Matthew says this, he is said to have brought them through a term that can indicate a gentle leading of the weak to a place of respite. And all I think about is Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So Joseph is, this, is the imagery of Christ to the Egyptians. He's leading them like a shepherd, gently, mercifully, to this place of respite. Joseph leads them through this difficult time in their lives. And you know, God does the same for us because the mercy of God is for all stages of life. Our second principle today is this, that God, in his mercy, will lead us through any difficulty. Let me give you some biblical background. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, tells us this. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Hold on to that one today. That's a great passage of Scripture. He's with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll never turn his back on us and walk away. Isaiah 41.10 says this, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Praise the Lord for that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So think about those as we talk next about this. What difficulty are you facing today? Are you right where the Egyptians are? You're struggling to buy food. Like, we're struggling to get food right now. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe finances are tight and you're struggling. Maybe your difficulty is a relationship with a family member or a friend, and you're struggling right now in that relationship. It's difficult. Maybe it's a health issue. I know the different things that I'm going through right now, and I'm thinking, boy, it'd be nice to, to be the way things used to be, right? I wish I didn't have this pain or that pain. I wish I could get up and down like I used to. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. All of us might be experiencing some kind of issue with our health. Maybe it's an emotional struggle today. Maybe you're feeling anxious about something. Maybe you're feeling depressed about something. Maybe you're fearing something. Maybe it's a spiritual battle. Some kind of temptation. A temptation to look at images that you shouldn't look at. A temptation to be attracted to someone of the same sex. A temptation to identify as someone other than who God created you to be. A temptation to steal. A temptation to do other things that you know you shouldn't do. Maybe it's an addiction that you're dealing with. Alcohol, drugs, something else. What difficulty are you going through? And again, it may be a financial shortage. Maybe you're just in debt up to your ears. Maybe there's medical bills that are just piling up because of the health issue you're dealing with. Maybe you're fo uh, facing foreclosure on your home. Maybe it's something else. 
I want to encourage you that God is right there with you. He's always with you. And just as Joseph mercifully led the Egyptians through their lack of food, God will mercifully lead us through our difficulties to a place of peace and rest. And maybe this first next step is just where you need to be at today, and that's to trust in the mercy of God to lead me through the difficulty I am currently facing. Maybe that's right where you're at. You can stop right now and just turn to him. In the quietness of your heart, you can say, Lord, I trust in you for this difficulty. And so Joseph bartered with the Egyptians for their livestock, but they were going to but they were going to have to sacrifice even more in order to survive the severe famine. They, had, they were going to have to sacrifice their land and their lives. Tells us that the livestock lasted for just a year and now the Egyptians do not have anything else to use to buy or barter for food. They openly admit this to Joseph. They cannot hide the fact from him. And certainly Joseph already knew. He knew when it was coming to an end, right? And the Egyptians actually make the offer, this third offer. They offer their land and their lives to Joseph, and he accepts. Now, seed is the third word used for what they were receiving from Joseph. And there's three different Hebrew words that are used. In verse 14, they receive rations. The Hebrew word is shever. And this uh, means that it was threshed grain, corn, or cereal. So this was ready. This, this grain was ready to be milled into flour, uh, roasted over the open fire, what, however they were going to prepare it. It was ready for that. In verse 17, they receive food. And here the, the Hebrew word is lahem. And then in verse 19, verses 19, and then we'll see in 23, they receive seed, which is zarah, in exchange for their land and lives. And the reason that they're bartering their land and lives was twofold. First, they didn't want to die. I, I think I'm right there with them, right? I don't want to die from starving. And they didn't want their land to become desolate or ruined. And we see here that no one was exempt except the priests. <clears throat> Every Egyptian sold their field to Pharaoh. They were now land tenants. They no longer owned the land, but farmed it for Pharaoh. The NIV says that Joseph reduced them to servitude, but other translations and the footnote in the NIV references the Masoretic text that says that Joseph moved the people into the cities. This makes sense because of uh, what Wearsby says. Uh, to make food distribution easier, many of the farm workers were moved into the cities until such time as seed would be available for planting. So he's like, he moved them all into the cities because that's where the food was in these various cities throughout Egypt. It was going to be easier to distribute it that way. And then when he gets to this part that we'll see in verses 23 to 26, he'll move them back out uh, into the farmland. It was also a way of reinforcing the fact that Pharaoh now owned their land. He's like, I'm moving you into the cities just so you know Pharaoh owned your land. So Joseph did not buy the land of the priests. Now the priests did not need to sell their land because Pharaoh gave them a regular allotment of food. They were one of the fortunate ones. They were not starving and about to die like the regular Egyptians were. And this is just a reminder that Jacob and his family were also taken care of by Pharaoh and Joseph. They were not in need in the land of Goshen. 
And so the procuring is done. Pharaoh has all of the Egyptians' money, livestock, land, and lives. And Joseph takes it one step further. He talks about grain futures in verses 23 to 26. Let's look at those verses together. So Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. So Joseph established this law that was still in existence when the author of Genesis was writing 400 plus years later. That's a legacy, isn't it? This one thing that Joseph said had lasted for that long. And this was probably to ensure the success of all future pharaohs who had priests and other groups to provide for. Joseph gave the Egyptians seed so they could plant the ground. And when it came time to harvest the crop, they had to give one-fifth, 20% of it to Pharaoh. They were allowed to use the other 80% as seed and food for themselves. This was a generous offer from Joseph and Pharaoh. This was actually below the average for the Middle East in ancient times. Golden Gate uh, and the commentary says in 1 Maccabees chapter 10, verse 30, it refers to a one-third tax on grain, so 33%, and one-half on fruit. <clears throat> so 20% was kind of low, so it was generous. Joseph was entrusting the seed that he had gathered during the seven years of abundance to the Egyptians so that, they, so that lives would be preserved and that God's purposes would be fulfilled. And the wonderful thing is that God does the same thing with us. That's our third principle today. He entrusts us with the good things of this earth for his purposes. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. We're in servitude to Almighty God. He owns everything. 1 Timothy 6.17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <clears throat> and then Proverbs 3 5 through 10, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. God has been generous with us. From the Old Testament, we see the principle of tithing, which is giving 10% to the Lord of all that he's given to us. We also see the principle of offerings, which uh, is anything extra that we give above our regular tithe. Giving is an act of worship. It's a way of acknowledging God's provision and care for us. Are you grateful for that? Giving is a way to show that. It's also a way for God's purposes to be accomplished here on earth. 
through the, uh, through the church that he established. Scripture talks all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament about taking care of orphans and widows and the poor, about spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the plan and purpose of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8 tells us this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Maybe the second step is for you today, and that's to give to the Lord a portion of all that he's given to me so his plans and purposes can be accomplished. The Egyptians are not angry with Joseph. They don't look at him as a tyrant. You took our money, you took our livestock, you took our land and our lives. That's not the attitude. We see the attitude here. The Egyptians were grateful to Joseph for saving their lives. They did not see him as a tyrant that was treating them unfairly, but as a savior. Joseph mercifully led the Egyptians through the seven years of severe famine. Next, we'll see that Joseph was merciful to his father at the end of his life by showing him kindness and faithfulness because the mercy of God is for all stages of life, whether we're going through difficulties in the middle of our lives or whether we're nearing death. Look at verses 27 to 31. Our second point today is promising. <clears throat> now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were, un were, and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. <clears throat> <clears throat> Jacob's not a very trusting guy, right? His brother had promised to give him the, the birthright. And he said, swear, me, swear to me. He's like, well, let's, we need to make it official. And the same thing with his own son, Joseph. When Joseph says, I'll do what you said, swear to me. Let's make it official. Not a very trusting fellow, but anyhow. <clears throat> we know that the Israelites settled in Goshen during the time of the famine and acquired property there. Pharaoh gave them the property. We also know that Joseph provided for them until the famine ended. And God was blessing the wombs of the women during this time, and the Israelites produced a lot of offspring. This was the fulfillment of the promise given to Jacob in Genesis chapter 46, verse 3, that they would become a great nation in Egypt. It was happening. We see this timestamp then. We learn that Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years before he died, and that he was 147 years old when he died. And as he's nearing death, he realized that his time was short, so he called for Joseph to come. Why did he call for Joseph instead of any of the other sons? Judah, Reuben was the firstborn, Simeon, any of those guys. I think it's for several reasons. Joseph has the power and authority to make Jacob's last wish come true. He's still over Egypt. And then also Joseph 
was the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife. He had kind of assumed the position of firstborn of the entire family. Jacob asked Joseph to make a solemn vow by placing his hand under his thigh. And this was a common practice in the ancient Near East, a way to seal the deal, so to speak. The fourth principle today is this, that God is pleased when we show mercy to our loved ones. Joseph was showing mercy to his father by being kind to him and faithful to his vow. We too can show mercy to our loved ones as they near death by being kind to them and faithful to our vows. You know, I've had the privilege of being with individuals and their families as they have neared death. It's such a sweet time of of sharing memories, love, and kindness. I remember one person who had their entire family with them in the hospital room. I was there with the family. The family members were loving on that person. And perhaps they were making final promises to care for one another and to treat each other with kindness. Maybe you've made a vow or a promise to a parent or a spouse as they've neared death. How, you've, how have you been doing with that promise? Have you been faithful to that promise? Is there anything you need to do to keep that promise? Perhaps you have a loved one who's nearing death. You know, with dementia and Alzheimer's being more prevalent today, it can be difficult to show kindness to that loved one, who, especially when they repeat the same thing over and over and over again, right? We get short-tempered. Yes, you already told me that. Yes, you already, yes, you already told me that, right? gets on our nerves. But you can show God's mercy to them by being kind and compassionate during those times. And I just want to challenge you today to ask the Lord to help you be kind and faithful to a loved one who's nearing death. He will give you the strength to succeed. Joseph promised and swore to bury his father in Canaan. We know, uh, we're going to see in Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 to 14, that it's in Machpelah where Abraham is at, where Isaac was buried. And then Israel or Jacob worshiped the Lord. He was grateful to the Lord that his last wish would be fulfilled. He was also grateful to the Lord that the clan leadership had been successfully passed on to Joseph. And since Jacob was too feeble to get up out of bed and bow down and worship, he turned towards the head of his bed as a symbolic way of bowing. The NIV says that he leaned on his staff, but there's a couple of different translations for that. Wearsby says this, Jacob's desire was that his funeral would be a clear witness that he was not an idol-worshiping Egyptian, but a believer in the true and living God. Jacob did not want his ailing and feeble body to stop him from worshiping the Lord. The same is true for us. We can still worship the Lord, and that's our fifth principle today, is we should never neglect to worship the Lord. He just simply rolled over in bed and faced the head of the bed and worshiped the Lord. We don't have to get up and get on our knees before the Lord. It's the, it's the attitude of the heart in which we come to the Lord. And so as we review this morning, do you need to trust in the mercy of God to lead you through the difficulty you are currently facing? Are you ready to give the Lord a portion of all that he's given to you so his plans and purposes can be accomplished? Is there a loved one that you need to show mercy to? Have you neglected the word to worship the Lord for something? 
You know, as a body of believers, we can trust in the mercy of God to lead us through difficult times. We can show mercy to, uh, to those in our congregation. We can worship the Lord for all that he's done for us. You see, because the mercy of God is for all stages of life. Let me finish with this illustration. I recently read a story by a woman who said that as a girl, she was poor. She said, I grew up in a cold water flat, but I married a man who had money, and he took me up to a place where I had flowers, and I had gardens, and I had grass. It was wonderful, and we had children. Then suddenly, I became physically sick. I went to the hospital, and the doctors ran all sorts of tests. One night, the doctor came into my room and with a long look on his face said, I'm sorry to tell you this, your liver has stopped working. I said, doctor, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me I'm dying? And he said, I, I can't tell you any more than that. Your liver has stopped working. We've done everything we can, we can to start it. And he walked out. I knew I was dying. I was so weak. I had to feel my way along the corridor down to the chapel of the hospital. I wanted to tell God off. I wanted to tell God, you are a shyster. You've been uh, passing yourself off as a loving God for 2,000 years. But every time anyone begins to get happy, you pull the rug out from under them. I wanted this to be a face-to-face telling off of God. And just as I got into the center aisle of the chapel, I tripped. I swooned. I fainted. And I looked up, and there stenciled along the step into the sanctuary... Where the altar is, I saw these words. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know God spoke to me that night. I know he did. She doesn't say how God communicated this to her, but what God said was, you know what this is all about. It's all about the moment of surrender. It's about bringing you to that moment when you will surrender everything to me. These doctors, they do the best they can but they only treat. I'm the only one who can cure you. And she said, there with my head down on my folded arms in the center of the chapel, repeating, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, I surrendered to God. I found my way back to my hospital bed, weak as I was. The next morning after the doctor ran the blood tests and the urinalysis and so forth, he said, your liver has started working again. We don't know why. We don't know why it stopped, and we don't know why it started up again. And I said in my heart, but I know. Oh, I know. God has brought me to the brink of disaster just to get me to turn my life over to him. She experienced the mercy of God. She was willing to surrender everything. You know, the Egyptians surrendered everything, and experienced the mercy of Joseph and Pharaoh. They were grateful for that. Jacob, he surrendered everything too, so that Joseph could kind of lead the clan forward. And he trusted in Joseph to take him back to the promised land to bury him. We can experience the mercy of God in every stage of our lives as we trust him. So as the ushers come to take up the tithes and offerings and as the worship team comes to close us in a song, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy. 
We're grateful that you don't give us what we do deserve. But as you bless us, you provide for us, you take care of us. And Lord, would our attitude be the same as that of the Egyptians, that we would be grateful. Thank you for saving our lives. Thank you for sending our son. Lord, we thank you that we can trust your mercy for every stage of our life. And we just commit ourselves to you now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand with